0: Well, if you would please turn with me one last time this weekend in your Bibles to Luke's Gospel in chapter 5. And as you're turning there with me, let me say what a great delight it's been to have been with you this weekend. You've been eager listeners to the Word of God. It's a delight to preach to you. You've no idea, as a congregation, what a difference you make to the preaching. If, If people sit there and look bored and dull, it kind of deadens your souls. you preach to them, but you, you listen with an eager-eyed anticipation for the Word of God, and it was a delight to bring God's Word to you, and I felt you draw the sermon from me, and the Holy Spirit uh, gave much help, and it's been a delightful weekend with your pastor and some of your Rice students as well. It's been a, it's been a, uh, a memory I'll cherish for a long, long time, being here in Houston this weekend. So if you would please turn to the word of God Luke 5 and we'll read Luke 5:27 through 32 and before we do let's pray Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for us who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. We pray this evening, O Lord God, as we come to Your Word one last time this weekend, that Your Holy Spirit will fall upon this gathering, and upon me, that You would strengthen me, You'd grant me clarity of mind, conviction of soul, courage of spirit, O God, compassion and heart, that I might proclaim the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ that I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man what things you have prepared for those who love you. And we pray this evening, our Father, that your Word will abide richly in these dear souls' hearts, and that they will have eyes to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of Jesus Christ, some perhaps for the first time, that you would save the lost this evening, O God, restore the backslider in the pathways of your righteousness for your namesake. And build us all up, O Lord, that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ Jesus, whom to know is everlasting life. And we offer these prayers in His name. Speak, Lord, for Thy servants are listening. Amen. This is the Word of God. Please take heed how you hear. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but this is the Word of God. It endures forever. Well, what's wrong with the world? And it depends, I suppose, who you ask, doesn't it? If you ask people on the on the left-hand side of the political equation, they'll say people who watch Fox News, Trump, and his cursed Trumplings. Those people who live in flyover America, who cling to God and their guns. It's the rich one percent who oppress the ninety-nine percent. Those people who don't pay their fair share of taxes, they say, that's the problem with America. Those oppressive um, people who birth too many of their ilk. And uh, that's what's wrong with America. And then if you ask those on the other side of the equation, they'll say, well, it's people who watch CNN. It's those tax-and-spend Democrats. Those elites, one rule for me and another for thee. That's what's wrong with America. Well, if you ask the Pharisees what was wrong with Israel, they would say, people like Levi." Levi was a man who had betrayed about everything that a Jew could hold dear. He had betrayed his family. He had betrayed his community. He had betrayed his, his God. He was a tax collector. Uh, the Romans had a, when they would invade a country, they would subject it and make them pay heavy taxes. And what they did was they would put the jobs up for sale. It wasn't that they paid you to raise taxes. You had to pay for the privilege of fleecing your own people. Let's say a certain district was worth 10 million shekels. I'm making up numbers, of course. The Romans would ask you, the tax collector, to pay 10 million million shekels up front to Rome, and then you would go and raise the 10 million shekels from the people. Doesn't sound like a very good deal, does it? You give Rome 10 million shekels, then you raise 10 million shekels from the people. But that's the wonderful genius you see, because Rome left it free to the tax collectors to add in surcharges and taxes. I was driving up, up north recently to a college in Grove City, Pennsylvania, where my son, he was visiting there a few weeks ago, and we were up, and on the way up, there were, there were many toll roads. I've learned to hate toll roads don't have one of those easy passes just yet, and there are no toll roads really, at least nowhere where I live, it's in North Carolina, it's the land of the free, home of the brave. But um, driving north is not free to drive on the highway, so we were going through the tolls, I thought, no problem, you just give a credit card to the person, you know, everything else there's MasterCard, and I gave it to the lady, and she goes, we don't take, we just take cash. I said, I don't carry cash. So she gave me a receipt. Now, the charge of the toll was only 75 cents, but because they didn't have any cash, the new charge was $5. And if I didn't pay it within three days, it was like $10. And then within a week, it was like $20. And after a month, it's $125. And I'm going, ah! And... I was—I'm absent-minded, so I was trying to pay this while driving away from the tool booth, and it was—I couldn't find my—it hadn't got through to the tiny brain in the central controller's office, and so I was having great difficulty in paying my debts, and I had visions of forgetting, and then two years' time, owing the state of um, Virginia or something, $135,000 because I hadn't paid this—this—this—this t- t- this, this, this tax, and it was like that for the um, these tax collectors—they would add these surcharges to the tax. And if you couldn't afford to pay, that's okay. They had uh, payday-to-day systems where they would lend you the money up front, but at exorbitant interest. So, at one hand, they were pretending to help the poor, but they were in reality fleecing them, and they were universally hated by the people of God. To the mind of the Pharisee, if there was a bottom to the bottomless pit of hell, it was carpeted by tax collectors, people like Levi. And so Jesus is walking out of the city, and He's walking past, um, down the road, and there's a tax booth. These men would set up their booths because they would tax everything. You know, if you're carrying stuff in a car, they would tax the, the, the duties, the excise you were, you were bringing out of a city, stuff you bought at market, all these things. And, as you, as they, and they were, we were sitting there, and you could imagine the Pharisees watching, you know, what's going to happen here? I mean, they're still recovering from the shock of Him touching a leper. I mean, a leper, for crying out loud. And then, forgiving the sins of the paralytic, it's just been a terrible weekend for the Pharisees. And they're watching Jesus walk past Matthew, and then he stops. And Matthew's there, counting his money. Nine shekels for room, one shekel for me. Nine shekels for Rome, one shekel for me. Nine shekels for Rome, oh, one shekel for me. Nine shekels for, Rome, oh, one shekels for me. When the Capital One credit card campaign came on, in Bethsaida in those days, and the question was, what's in your wallet? Matthew's children would joke, Daddy's heart's in his wallet. And he's called Matthew, That was the name his mother gave him, of course. It means given, given by God. But the only thing that Matthew had given his family in donkey's years was shame. And so the question is, how will Christ teach to treat Matthew, and remember, each of these individuals, the leper, the cripple, and now the taxman, they're all pictures of sin, what sin is and what sin does to people. The leper, sin makes us dirty, unclean, unworthy of the presence of God. The cripple, sin makes us un- unable, totally unable to come to God, to obey God, to serve God, enslaved to sin. And Matthew's a picture of how sin makes us disgusting, horrible. And we see Jesus here as he comes to deal with Matthew. And it's an encouragement, I think, because Jesus hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. How does Jesus treat Matthew? First of all, he calls him with power. Calls him with power. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Here's Jesus reaching into the pit. It's like uh, what's the old series of All Creatures Great and Small, the child growing up. I decided then I definitely didn't want to be a vet. But um, I hear there's a new series, it's very good, I've not seen it, but the, the old one, it always be the Tristan and James Harriet and, and uh, Siegfried in my mind, but James Hardy, Siegfried. But I remember one of the early episodes, horrified as a child, watching James Harriet stick his hand where the sun doesn't shine in this cow to try and um, rescue its, its calf, And out came the hand, covered in all this green, horrible stuff. And Jesus here reaches into the pit of hell, down past the perverts and the porn stars and the pedophiles, right down to the bottom, and there's Levi. He grabs him. And he says to Levi, follow me. And for years, the only thing that ever commanded the affections of Levi's heart was the almighty shekel. James Packer says, Sex and shekels have always made the world go round. But for Levi, it was the shekel. It was the mighty dollar. That's what lit his candle. Follow me. And in that moment, as Jesus said those two words, follow me, everything changed. The whole inclination of Levi's heart was reversed. From darkness to light, from death to life, he experienced what one Presbyterian father called the expulsive power of a new affection. Gone was the affection for money, and came into his heart the affections of God, and he turned. As such, he's a glorious picture to you and me of the new birth. If you look in John 3 a second, go back in John 3. going the wrong way in my Bible. That's a bad sign. John's after Luke. John 3. My head's not in the game. Okay, John 3. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know—that's a damning indictment of the Pharisees—we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do the things that you are doing unless God is with him. The Pharisees knew who Christ was. They knew what Christ was. He forgave sins of people. He raised the dead. A man born uh, later in the last—there are seven I am sayings in, in John's gospel, right? And, the, 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 and, and seven glorious signs that match Christ's self-declaration. He is the great I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And the last one, Christ calls Lazarus from the dead. He's dead. Four days. So you know the significance. The the um, um, it's tremendously painful. Jesus um, is there and a messenger comes and says, Lazarus, the one whom you love is sick. And Jesus says, tell them this sickness will not end in death, but for the glory of God, right? And so the messenger goes back, without Jesus. Now listen, follow me now. Scholars debate how far it was away. Let's say it's a day's journey. Doesn't matter, the math doesn't really change, actually. Some would say four days' journey, but it doesn't change. One day's journey. So one day... Um, The messenger goes back, and he gets, so day zero, he leaves Mary and Martha, and he goes to Jesus, day zero to day one, meets Jesus, takes that word of life back to um, Bethany, day one, day two. Jesus waits two more days, day three, day four. Then Jesus goes to Bethany, day five. And when Jesus gets to Bethany, he finds Lazarus has been dead how many days? Four days. And Do you see what that means? It means that the messenger came back to Bethany, saying, don't worry, the Master has said, this sickness will not end in death, but for the glory of God. And Mary and Martha say, you've got to be kidding me. Lazarus died two hours ago. We just buried him. Where's Jesus? He didn't come. Why? He didn't say. Okay. One day goes by, no Jesus. Two days goes by, no Jesus. Three days go by, no Jesus four days go by, Jesus arrives. Now, it seems horribly painful. Why would Jesus do that? And John instinctively jumps in at the start of the story in Luke 11, John 11 and says, now Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. I love the way John describes that. He didn't just love that family. No, he loved Mary and he loved Martha and he loved Lazarus. He loved them in the particularity of their individuality, do you see? Why did he he stay back? It, it It was not because he didn't love this family. Jesus said, I'm glad I was not there, that you might believe and see the glory of God later to his disciples. The reason Jesus stayed four days is because of this reason. This is a climactic miracle of Christ's ministry before his own resurrection. The Jews believed that for the first three days after a man died, a holy man like Elijah or Elisha could raise you from the dead. They believed the Spirit kind of hung about in the area. But after the third day, on the fourth day, when the person began to rot, there was a divided opinion. The Pharisees believed that only God Himself on the fourth day, not a a holy man, not Elijah, not Elisha, only God Himself could raise the dead on the fourth day. The Sadducees who believed there was no resurrection, they believed that not even God himself could raise the dead on the fourth day. And so Jesus comes into town on the fourth day. And Mary and Martha, brokenhearted, Lord, if you'd been here, my my, brother would not have died. And Jesus goes to the tomb, and he weeps. And the word weep is is a very strong word in the Greek. It it means an anger almost. And some commentators will say Christ was angry because they didn't believe in him. That's not the reason at all. Look at Christ's face at at the tomb. There's no anger in his face. You say, I can't see Christ's face. Yes, you can. The Jews who were there, they looked at his face, and what did they say? Behold how he loved him. Christ's heart is torn in ribbons. He sees what death has done to this family. And yet, even though he knew he's so tender, he knows in 35 seconds he's turning the funeral into a party. But still, he's tender and his heart's broken. Rule the stone away. He stinks. Doesn't matter. Roll it away. Father, I thank you that you hear me. And then he looks at the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus, comes. One commentator says, good job, Jesus clarified, Lazarus, if he just said, come forth, all of the graves across the world would have been emptied. And some people believed and, and, of the Pharisees, and they go to the Pharisees in Jerusalem, and they said, what happened? And the Pharisees said, don't be ridiculous, that couldn't have happened. No. The Pharisees in Jerusalem said, if we don't stop him, the Romans will come and take away our place. That's the end of his ministry, the climactic sign. But at the very beginning of his ministry, here in John 3, John says, Nicodemus says, we know that you're a teacher come from God. And he wants to know, Christ, who are you? Why have you come? And Christ, as he so wonderfully does, he turns it around and cuts to the real question. And he he says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot see. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus says, that's crazy. How can I be born again? How can I get back into a mother's womb? That's why. And I was in the Royal Maternity Hospital in Belfast. Um, well, I was in the Royal Belfast Hospital for Sick like, Children, but next door was the Royal Maternity Hospital. And next door to that was the emergency room. And there's a true story. This midwife walking through the emergency room, and there was a man there with her, his shoulder being dislocated. And the doctors are putting it back in again, a shoulder into the into the joint. He's screaming; it's painful. And the midwife put her head round the the um, curtain and said, "Sir, this is ridiculous. There are women across in the maternity hospital giving birth right now, making less noise than you are." And quick as a flash, the man said, "Ma'am, I didn't cry when it came out." I cried when they put it back in again. You go across to the maternity hospital and get those babies, and you push them back in again, you'll hear those girls scream. (laughs) And Nicodemus said, how can I get back into the mother's womb? It doesn't make sense. And Jesus says, are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not know these things. You need to be born again from inside. Born again from above. It's an absolutely radical change. Notice Jesus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And most scholars here think Jesus is talking about Ezekiel 36, I will gather you from all the nations to which you have been scattered, and I will sprinkle you with clean water, and you shall be clean. I shall cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all of your idols. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my Spirit within you, and I will cause you to keep my statutes, and you will keep my precepts and do them who's the actor in those verses? It's God. I will take you. I will sprinkle you. I will take the heart out. I'll put a new heart in. I'll give you my spirit, and I will cause you. I love that verse. There's times, young people, when you'll want to sin, and old people too. You'll want to sin. And that, my, my bull hole, when that happens to me, when the madness of sin grabs me, I go to Ezekiel 36, and I say, Father, you've promised. I will cause you to keep my precepts. And I say, God, I want to sin. God, forgive me. I do. Help me, Lord. You've promised I will cause you to keep my commandments. And my testimony is every time I've prayed that prayer, God has never left me to my own devices. God is a God who works inside of us. And there's a whole swathe of people in the church who believe that we bring our faith. We're a dead sinner. And then we believe. And then God gives us the new birth. That's exactly back to front. You cannot see the kingdom of heaven. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven until you're born again. The illustration I use, the CPR paddles. Someone's dead, cardiac arrest. You put the paddles on, press the button. Does the person jerk before or after you press the button? Does the doctor go, okay, I'm going to wait, and if he, if he kind of jerks, I'll press the button. No. You'd be in trouble, right? The guy's dead. D-E-A-D. He's dead. You put the paddles on, and you press the button, and shoomph! They jerk. That's a picture of the new birth. You're dead in sins. You bring nothing to the table but dead in sins, trespasses, unable to come to God, because you won't come to God, and because you won't, you can't. And God puts the paddles of the new birth upon you, and He brings the power of Easter to bear upon you, and it energizes you, and the, the soul jerks, and that jerk in the soul is faith and repentance. Now, in your mind, you do, you do exercise faith. You choose it, but that exor- you choose to believe in Jesus, but you only choose to believe in Jesus because God chose to cause you to be born again. Look at Ephesians 2, the same truth. You need to move quickly here. Ephesians 2. I love this passage. And, and you were dead, not sick, not almost dead, but dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world— following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the son of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We are dead. We are disobedient and defiant. We are driven by the fashions of the world and by the dark infernal hand of the devil. And we are deserving of wrath. That's who we are, carrying out the desires of the body. Now here's the thing, before you're born again, illustration, if I were to give you, and this is a little gross, but bear with me, two bowls, in one bowl there's chocolate ice cream, and in the other bowl, there's frozen dog manure. And you're free to choose. Are you free to choose? Do you go, ah, (laughs) you know it's tempting, I don't know what to take. No, you're gonna take the chocolate ice cream all day, every day, even if you don't like ice cream. And that's just the way it is with a sinner. Given the choice of choosing his own desires and sin, or the God he hates, he will choose his sin all day long, until God does something. No, until God does everything in his heart to change him. That's the new birth. What does Paul say here? We're dead and sins. And what happens? Well, Paul says, but we felt guilty about ourselves and felt we weren't having our best life now, and so we picked ourselves up and dragged ourselves to God and said, Lord, have mercy on us. And God said, maybe. Is what your Bible says? No. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did God do? He made us alive together with Christ Jesus. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. The whole faith salvation is a gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one can boast. You think about it, if, if I'm saved because I believed, that's a half-truth. But a half-truth told us a whole truth and a whole untruth, right? But if I am saved purely because I believed, I can boast. On the Day of Judgment, I can look at my family members, my friends who didn't believe the gospel, and I can say to them, I chose to believe Jesus. You didn't. You're getting what you deserve. I am, in some sense, better than you because I believed. And that's not the case at all. If that was the case, there's a a bunch of dear brothers and sisters, maybe some here this evening, and, and you can't get past the election language in the Bible. The Bible says, but God has chosen us for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. God believed Paul believed God chose us before the foundation of the world. The only question is why did God choose us? And the church is confused. Half the church, maybe more in America, believe that God chose us because he saw we would believe. It kind of you read to the end of the book of history and he said, Okay, I see all the winning horses, it's like insider trading, I'm going to choose them. If that's true, do you see the election of God flows towards human goodness that I was going to believe? I was going to do something good. I was going to make my contribution. I was going to believe in Jesus. And for that reason, God chose me. Right? That's what some of our friends believe. But I would put it to you this evening, God's election doesn't flow to human goodness. God's election flows from divine goodness. It was because there was something good in Him as He looked out at mankind running headlong to hell. The same God whose Son reached down and said to Levi, follow me. God looked down at me and many of you here in this room and said, I'm not going to let you have what you want. I'm not going to let you go to hell. I'm going to rescue. I'm going to save you. I'm not just going to make your salvation possible. I'm going to make your salvation unstoppable. I'm going to send a savior, not just to offer you salvation, but to do the whole job. I'm not going to send you a half savior, No, he's going to be called Jesus. Why? For he will save. Not try to save, not hope to save, not do his best to save. He will save his people from their sins. Power. Jesus says, all the Father gives to me will come to me. This is the will of my Father, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise them up at the last day. The Father has given me authority over all flesh, that to all he has given to me, I might give to them eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And that's what's happening here in Levi. God call, Jesus calls him with power. Now, maybe you're here this evening and you're saying, how does, how does the new birth happen? How does it happen? It happens for you the same way it happened for Levi. It comes through the Word of Christ. How do I know that? Well, look at James 1. And we're going to move on to point 2, which point 1 is always my longest point, so don't panic. Um, <laughs> James 1, verse 18, "...of his own will, of God's own will... He brought us forth, and the word brought forth is a Greek word for giving birth to a child. Of his own will, not our will, <laughs> of his will, he brought us forth. How? By the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruit of his creatures. His word. That same word that created the Orion, stars and nebula and the and the Milky Way, 100,000 light years wide. It's amazing, just one galaxy. You fly at 186,000 miles a second, it takes you 100,000 years to go from one end to the other. And God made it with words. And that word has power. And so when Jesus walked up to Levi, and he says, follow me, Do you really think the angels are going, you know, I wonder what's going to happen here? (laughs) Is Levi going to choose to follow or not? It's interesting. Let's watch. I'll bet you, $10. No, because the voice that says, follow me, is the voice of God, and it brings the power to effect what it commands. It changes Levi inclines him from money toward the majesty of God. And in a moment, Levi gets up and leaves everything, a picture of the new birth. I'm asking you this evening, have you been born again? It's important, if you look at, you know, that, that passage in John 3, it's a very… an, an Ulsterman and John, Bishop Usher gave us the, the division of John 2 and 3, but the previous verse is interesting. Jesus is at the Passover feast in Jerusalem, and it says, Many believed in His name, John 2.23, when they saw the signs that Jesus was doing. And this is the literal Greek. But Jesus, on His part, did not believe Himself to them. They believed in Him. He did not believe Himself to them Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. That's a disastrous translation. He didn't entrust himself to them because he knew all men and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Chapter 3, verse 1, neither was a man. Nicodemus. You could miss that if you just stopped in chapter 2. Jesus knew all men. He knew these people. They were convinced, but they weren't converted. Like the devil, the devil is the most orthodox theologian in all the world. He knows more theology than Ligon Duncan and the great geniuses on on our shelves. He knows what's true. He knows what side his theological bread is buttered on, we say in Northern Ireland. He just doesn't love the God he knows about. Doesn't serve the God he knows about. But he's convinced he's just not converted. And these people were convinced they knew who Christ was, but they weren't converted. Nicodemus knew who Christ was. We know you are a teacher come from God, but they weren't converted. And Christ said, you need something more only God can give you. You must be born again. George Whitfield, the great preacher, preached that constantly. You must be born again. His disciples asked him, why do you always preach you must be born again? He said, because you must be born again. Have you been born again? Have you felt the Word of God come into your heart and soul and change you from darkness to light? Now, for some of the children here, it might have happened so early in your life, you can't remember a day when you didn't love Jesus. But do you love Jesus? Have you been transformed? Has the God who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness commanded the light of the knowledge of the glory of God to shine in your hearts Do you see Jesus, and do you love Him? Do you love Him? And Jesus reached down, and the wonder of this passage is Jesus reached down to this despicable sinner, and He called him with power. Secondly, moving on quickly, Jesus treats him like a friend. He called him with power. He treats him like a friend. "'And Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, "'Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners?' Jesus had table fellowship with Levi and his ilk, his friends.' Now, the Pharisees are appalled because of what table fellowship means in the ancient Near East. The Pharisees were appalled. T- to even bump into the likes of Levi in the middle of Kruger would be unthinkable. So, when they got home, they would bath and wash themselves, just in case they touched a tax collector or touched something a tax collector had touched, they'd bathe. But to sit down at table fellowship was unthinkable. Why? Well, think of it like this. You and I, when we make an agreement, maybe we make a, take on a mortgage with the bank, we sign the covenant, right? In the ancient Near East, they kind of ate the covenant. They would sit down at a table and share a table fellowship. There are echoes of that in our own marriage feast. It was the meal that sealed the deal in the ancient Near East. And when you sat down with table fellowship, what you were saying really was, these are my people. I am one with them, and they are one with me. And it's amazing how much of the Bible revolves around eating and drinking. Eve, she took and she ate. And Derek Kidner, the great Old Testament scholar, he said, she took and she ate. How simple the act, how hard the undoing. God will taste poverty and death before take and eat ever again become verbs of salvation. This is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat. It's the Old Testament Passover where they would eat the Passover lamb and the other sacrifices. And it's a very powerful picture because what's happening is when you eat the Passover supper, it is becoming you and you are becoming it. There's a sacramental, a physical, a mysterious union between the person offering the sacrifice and the sacrifice, symbolized in eating the sacrifice. It becomes part of you. You are what you eat. Think of it like this. How can God—I ask seminary students this. I sit on a committee that examines seminary students, and I ask them, how can God punish Jesus for stuff you did and that not be wrong? And the fact that God is God and can do whatever He wants is not a good answer. God can't do whatever He wants. God can only do His holy will. God cannot sin. He cannot be unjust. He cannot be untrue. He cannot be unfaithful. He cannot be unwise. How can God punish Jesus for your sin and that be okay? And it's amazing how many seminary students like, error, error, don't know, uh, kind of panic. And the answer is simple. Union with Christ. He becomes one with me, I become one with him. It's that logic we said on Friday night of the bank account. My wife says I earn all the money, she spends all the money. What's mine is mine and what's yours is mine, she said when we got married. Uh, I thought, doesn't sound quite right. But that logic, when you you join a, a joint bank account with your wife, what you're saying to the bank account manager is, if this woman owes you anything at all, I'll pay it. I had no part in her spending, but I have the full part in paying for it. And that's exactly what happened upon the cross. Jesus joined Himself to us. And the bank accounts merged. It's why He was baptized. Listen to this. I love this. This is by Jeff Thomas, one of the great preachers of our age, pastor of the church in Wales, 47 years. And he's preaching about Christ's baptism here. He says, There is a great line of repentant sinners standing soberly and sorrowfully on the bank of the Jordan, waiting to go down into the dirty waters to John to be baptized. Survey them there in your mind with me, standing in that long, guilty line. There's a thief, a drunkard, an adulterer, a liar, a bully, a wife-beater, an idol-worshipper, a torturer, Jesus, a murderer, a forger, a troublemaker, a braggart, a terrorist, a blasphemer, an abuser of children, a spendthrift, and hundreds more, everyone a sinner. And there is Jesus made in the likeness of sinful flesh, standing in line between the torturer and the murderer. Indistinguishable outwardly, but inwardly he is wholly without sin. As the prophet said, Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors. He stands with sinners in solidarity. He stands for sinners in substitution. He will hang on a tree as the Lamb of God and bear the sins of the world. At the last, He will do more than stand with them in their sin. He will be made sin for them. That is why he stands here in the sinner's baptism, because one day he will climb Golgotha in love and stand in the closest possible contact with sinners, taking responsibility for their sin and answering for it before the throne of God. On the day of the cross, God looked down and said, who is responsible for all of this sin? and Jesus steps forward. I'm responsible. Now, think about that. Think about how hard it is for you to admit that you were wrong. Your wife asks you to bring up a carton of of fresh cream home for um, supper. You're having the Joneses over. You've got to keep up with the Joneses, right? And you can't bring some miracle whip. That's not cream. It's got to be fresh cream for the Joneses. Please don't forget to bring the cream home for supper. And you think to yourself, the last thing I must do before I leave work is to forget to buy the cream. And it is. It's the last thing you do before you leave work. You forget to buy the cream. You arrive home from work, and you walk in through the door, and your wife goes, the cream. And you think, oh. What do you do? You say, you know I'm forgetful. Why didn't you call me? Why didn't you remind me? You could have texted me and reminded me. What are you saying? It's your fault. Now, think about it. We're talking about a quart of whipping cream. And you and I struggle to say it's my fault. Just bearing the blame for messing up, not the whole meal, just dessert, is unbearable for you and me. Just this one, just forgetting cream for crying out loud. It's so hard. It's like that in marriage. And people come to me for marriage counseling and I ask, who's to blame? What's the problem? And they all go, he's the fault. No, it's him. A year or so ago, I was going out to a conference and I'd left my, my laptop case on the washing machine. Open. New laptop in it, MacBook Pro, that iPad in it. Open. And I thought, I shouldn't leave it there. Stupid of me, but I'll leave it there. I'll run. So I ran to get something from the bedroom. When I came back, there had been kids, some of my kids, through the laundry room. The laptop case is on the ground, upside down. The laptop's on the ground. The iPad. And who is responsible? All the kids. It was him. It was him. No, it was Josiah. No, it was Ben. No, 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 it was Samuel. No, no, it was Aaliyah. And everyone was blaming one another. And Samuel, my little 11-year-old boy, he was born blind. His vision returned basically miraculously in the second half of the first year. But he still has some special needs. And he's delightfully innocent. Out of the mouth of babes. And Samuel stands forward and says, Daddy, it was all my fault. It was all my fault. That's always Samuel. It's all my fault. And it was just, it broke my heart. You know, because everyone's passing the blame. And this, this little child says, Daddy, it's all my fault. How often can we say, it's all my fault? And Jesus Jesus, on the cross. Who's to blame for this? Jesus says, Father, blame me. How much of the blame? Give all of the blame to me. Treat me as you ought to treat them, and then treat them as you ought to treat me. Take me down below the bottom of finite misery into the endless burnings where the gravitational force of the wrath of God becomes infinite, and bring them up into the height of heaven, to the throne room of God. Send me down and send them up. And Jesus, sitting and eating with these tax collectors and sinners, he's saying, these are my people. And this morning at the table, Jesus was here, Christian. He was saying, you are my people. I am not ashamed to call you brother, sister. How amazing. The, the, the Jesus, that Isaiah saw and almost killed him, is not ashamed to call the likes of you and me brother and to eat with sinners. He calls him with power, and he treats him like a friend. And if Jesus will do that for Levi, he'll do that for you this evening, my brother and my sister, visitor here at this church. And lastly, Jesus heals him deep inside. The Pharisees are appalled. He eats and drinks with sinners. Jesus says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Levi's sick. But I've come as a doctor to heal him from the inside out. There's a Jesus here who's not willing to forgive you, he's willing to change you. He said, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And that word repentance means a change of mind about everything. That's, that's the problem. You and I, we're like the legs of a dead cockroach. Everything points inward. All the legs point inward. And in a sinner's heart, everything points inward. We're selfish, self-centered, selfish ambition, self-centeredness. Young people, if you don't believe me, get married. You, you have no idea how selfish you are until you get married. It's one of God's great tools to break down that selfishness, but still, selfishness. And we need a change of mind about everything, principally who God is. And it's not us, it's Him. And the problem in the world is that there—what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? There are too many somebodies. That was the problem in Philippi, wasn't it? Too many somebody's. Udea and Syntyche, Udeas and Syntyche, fighting, and the whole church fighting, preachers capitalizing on Paul in, in prison, seeking to add pain to Paul when he's in prison, trying to muscle in on his church and so forth. Too many somebody's fighting, jockeying for positions. And Jesus and Paul says, let me tell you about the only somebody there ever was. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in His love, any participation in the Spirit, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, nothing, do nothing, nothing, it's not about you. But with humility, count others as more important than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's the essence of the Christian life. It's a new mind, and it's ours in Christ. We, we believe into Him, and His mind becomes our mind. What's that mind? He was in the form of God the morphe of God, the, the exact size and shape of God. Like a circle, right? To be a circle, the morphe of a circle is not being round. I'm kind of round, my wife tells me, and I need to be less round. I put on 20 pounds over Christmas, and everything's too tight, and um, it's hard. I either lose 20 pounds or buy a your wardrobe, so I'm going to lose 20 pounds, and it's hard. Um, but I'm, I'm not a circle. I'm, I'm round. To be a circle, you've got to have the morphe of a circle which is the radius remains constant all the way around the circumference in two dimensions. Other than that, you might be a blob or an oval, but you're not a circle. The morphe of a circle. Jesus was in the morphe of God, the exact size and shape of God, and thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He didn't try to grasp after equality with God, like Adam or like Satan. He already was equal with God. And he made himself nothing. He emptied himself by taking, not by losing his divinity, but by taking the form of a servant. This great Jesus came to be a servant, to serve you, to serve you. And when you see that, nothing remains the same, everything changes. How can I expect my wife to be my servant? when Jesus came and served the whore of Babylon to make her the bride of Christ. No, I must serve her. And her attitude is, how can I expect my husband to serve me when Christ, the Son of God, served me? And so the Christian marriage has turned into a battle of service. We can serve one another most by doing one another in self-denial. But it comes not by guilting your way to it, not by white-knuckling your way to it, but by looking your way to it, looking to Jesus, seeing Jesus, knowing Jesus, having Him come down to you, as He did the disciples at the upper tomb. He's standing on the verge of hell. He's about to go to hell the next day, and His thought is, my disciples are weary and they they need someone to wash their feet. closed himself in a servant's garb and gets down on his knees and washes their feet. And you can't experience that without doing that. You can't experience Christ serving you without being transformed by the expulsive power of a new affection and saying, it's no longer about me, Father, it's about your Son, and making much of Him. And Christ called Levi in his sins, but he didn't leave him there. He transformed him, called him to repentance. He's a good shepherd, finding him and bringing him all the way home. Like Psalm 23, when I'm hungry, he feeds me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. When I'm lost, he finds me. He restores my soul He guides me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Literally, the word restore means he causes my soul to repent. He turns me around. When I'm scared, he's with me. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And when I come to die, he'll bring me safely all the way home. Your goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. Isn't he wonderful? Isn't our Savior wonderful? That's why I've been trying to preach about him this weekend to you, because I could guilt you about, you know, go and share the gospel. The world's going to hell. Don't you care about the lost world? How selfish you all are. That's guilting you. I could drive you, but it's not going to work. But if you see who Jesus is, the King of heaven, my shepherd is, and he came for you and for me because he was gracious, That's a, a message that turns the world upside down and seeing him. Less will not satisfy, more can only be desired, and I want to spend my life. Don't you want to spend your life serving Jesus, sharing Jesus, telling others about Jesus and his love? He treats people like Levi and you and me as his friends. Let's pray together. Father, thank you, O God, for the power of Jesus that can make a dead man live. And I pray, Father, you will do in the hearts of these dear people, do in my heart, O God, what only you can, break down our selfishness, restore our soul, cause us to walk in your statutes, make us self-denying people who take up our cross and follow after you. If we seek to hold on to our life, we will lose it. But if we lose our life for Christ's sake and the gospel, we will save it. We offer these prayers in your Son's name, O God. Glorify your Son's name this evening in our hearts, in our homes, and in our lives that he might have all the glory and the preeminence till the day breaks and the shadows flee away. Amen.